can have a seat. Thank you, Giovanna. Giovanna is an incredible reader of the Word of God, as Vic was in the first service, but about halfway through that, you just start to hear, wah, 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 wah. Did you get all that? <laughs> did, you, did you get all that, what Paul just did in this back half of Romans 5? It's a, a beautiful and a complicated text. And you already heard that there are cinnamon rolls and bacon available in the youth room, and you're still here. So we're going to dig in to whatever Paul is doing here, I think there's actually a way to kind of simplify and understand the grace and the goodness and the mercy of God through Jesus Christ in Romans 5. Came upon a story this last week. Studying for sermon prep on a Wednesday morning, taking a little break, hopped on Facebook and saw this title to a video very much definitely clickbait, but I couldn't help myself. Title of the video was, Can't Believe What This Police Officer Did to This Baby. Can't believe what this police officer did to this baby. I'm like, okay, I will watch that. I would like to know. The guy that posted it is a friend of mine, Rob Novak. He's a church planner and a pastor in uh, downtown San Diego, and I trust him and I love him, so I was like, it can't be that weird. Pull up the video, and wow, I was blown away. It takes you to a scene of one car chasing another. Normally, it's a police car chasing another car. In this instance, it was a white sedan with two women in it chasing down, tailgating, honking at, and waving frantically at a police car. They're at a light. He can tell something is wrong. He turns on his sirens. They turn the corner and both of them pull over into the long Florida grass. Now, when you get pulled over by a police officer, for most of you, that's a when, not an if. You know the first thing you don't do is jump out of the car. But as soon as the two cars had pulled over into the grass, a woman leapt from the car screaming frantically. Although the officer was fearful at first, as soon as she turned around, he could see what the issue was. For in her arms, she held a limp and lifeless little baby boy. Now this officer, Jeremy Nix, who had been on the force at this point for 17 years, as soon as he could see he was safe, he jumped out of the car and took the baby in his arms. The women were screaming. One is calling People, the other is crying out to the officer, don't let my baby die. He held the child up to his ear and noticed that the baby wasn't breathing. He put the baby on the ground and proceeded to give CPR while his partner called the EMT. After a minute of CPR, the officer could only get one single faint breath out of the child. And the EMT radioed back and said, we're about five to 10 minutes away. It was at that point with the mother crying and the officer sweating and the child in need that Officer Nick said, we cannot wait here. He took the baby in his arms and jumped into his patrol car. You see, when life and death are on the line, 
when that's what we're dealing with, when we're dealing with life and death, when that is what is on the line, the question for that child, the question for us is, who represents you? Who can save you? Who can help you? Under whose power and authority and ability to help will you stand under? In the little church in Rome, Paul's writing to this sweet, fledging little church plant. They're sweet, but they've been a church for over three days, and so they're already fighting together. Paul's writing to this sweet church, and he's saying, look, I know you don't have a choice. There's no choice about who represents you in the empire. In, in Rome, you were required to bow the knee to Caesar. And a couple times a year during the festivals, there'd be a great parade. Folks would be brought up to the street, and you would bow your knee to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Caesar himself, who declared himself to be a god. So in one sense, they had no choice who represented them. In another sense, as you just heard, they had a really big choice. Would they bow the knee to Caesar, or would they bow the knee to Christ alone? And for many of our brothers and sisters in that early church, it meant a trip to the Colosseum. We live, thank God, in a different world. We live in a world and we live in a country, and by the way, thank some of you who fought for this, where we still have an incredible, even an unprecedented amount of religious liberty. We understand what it means to be represented by another based on the collective choices of the people at large. Our political system is a great example of this, right? We live in a democratic republic, and we vote for representatives to go and represent our needs on the big stage. Now, I don't know about you, but when I vote, I normally feel like it's about, you know, I'm like 58% represented by whoever it is. So in our two-party system, you know, it's always a little bit of a lesser of two evils. But at the same time, you have a vote, you have a choice, and you have a voice. You're represented by those who are in your charge. Another great example is parenting. Like it or not, and this is a heavy one, as parents, we are the, the heads or the representatives of our children. We represent them in the work we do, in the homes we create, in the boundaries that we give, in the discipline that we carry out. And by the grace of God, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But as I thought about this this week, it was, it was humbling. Wow. Um, it's, a it's a great responsibility as a parent or even as a grandparent to represent your kiddos. Here's another example from this last couple weeks. Uh, the U.S. women's national soccer team. Now, do any of you in here actually watch soccer? If you have, you have a problem with sleep or, okay, good. No, I'm kidding. But I'm going to be real. I don't watch soccer and I certainly don't watch women's soccer. Not because that's not a thing. Just I just don't watch women's soccer. Uh-oh, how do I backpedal out of that one? Here, I'll tell you how I backpedal out of it. The men didn't win the World Cup, okay? So I don't ever watch soccer. I don't watch women's soccer. But man, when I was at the airport on my way from Dallas to Santa Fe, and we were in one of those little airport dingy restaurants with, you know, a $17 Diet Coke and one refill, and we were watching the women's national team, I swear every single person in that room was a fan of U.S. women's soccer. And I'm thinking most of the folks in that room never watch soccer. But amazingly, we're different people, and I'm in Dallas, so we've got, 
You know, we've got Hispanic, we've got African-American, we've got white. You could tell people are going to different places. And every one of us in that room was united. We were all instantly, and for one day only, the biggest fans you could think of, of U.S. women's soccer. And when they win, there's this sense in which, yes, I was represented in that. Because that's my country's team. And even if I don't watch much soccer or care much about it, it feels good to know that the folks who represent us on the world stage went and won. This is the question Paul is getting at. Who represents you? And so what Paul does in our text, and here's how we're going to simplify it, is Paul draws a stark contrast between our two and only two options. You will either be found in Adam, in the flesh, as a son or daughter of Adam, in your own strength, in your own works, trying to work your way and struggle your way and rule keep your way out of a nature of sin, or blessed be the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel means you will be found in his finished work. The first Adam will represent you or the second one will. Those are your only two options. Either man and his strength or the God-man and his weakness raised up from the dead. Either sin and our ability to fight it with the law or grace and the ability of Christ alone to keep the law perfectly. And so this text is packed. Commentators have said that Paul, who is normally very strategic in the way he argues and still is here, gives us but an outline and a sketch of some massive concepts. So even the commentators on Romans are saying, man, Paul in this text is kind of going way too fast and throwing out way too much stuff. And yet, it's a simple thing that Paul is doing. He's comparing Adam and our representation in Adam and our standing in Adam with our own strength to the new humanity, the new representative, the true and better king of the world, Jesus Christ. And he's asking the church in Rome to continue considering those implications of the gospel. Whose authority and representation will you stand under? Now, here's the main point then. If there's two threads, the thread of Adam and the thread of Christ, here's the main point of the text. The gift of God is greater. The gifts that Adam give, it's, it's like opening up a present on Christmas morning and finding spoiled fruit. Time and time again, we know ourselves we know our hearts, we know our need, our brokenness, the, the things that we struggle with, we know we can't save ourselves. And as much as we've tried, as hopelessly meritorious as we are, the gift of Adam that keeps on giving is death. Instead, the gift of God through Jesus Christ is greater. So that's how Paul traces out two threads, Adam and Christ, by making this main point, the gift of God is greater. And we're going to take it in two ways. First, that the gift is greater than the death that comes for us. And secondly, that the gift is greater because grace abounds to us. The gift is greater than the death that comes for us, and the gift is greater because of the grace that abounds to us. Now, right here, you should be asking, wow, that's a lot. Adam, Christ, threads, big words, theology, who cares? <laughs> I mean, who cares? Why, why is Paul, okay, give me the implications of the gospel. Give me like 
five practical steps for me to do in my life. Who cares about all this highfalutin, you know, 30,000 feet above the tree stuff? And I believe Paul's answer to us would be, well, we must absolutely care. Because the difference between you being found and represented in Adam and in Christ is the story of the whole Bible. The Bible is a story of two sons, Adam and his sons and daughters, and God the Son, Jesus Christ, and those who are now his brothers that inherit the riches of the kingdom. It's a story of two lines, two, tra two trajectories, people who trust in themselves and people who trust in God alone. It's a story of two covenants. And here I want to slow down because this is a big and important concept, but one that we need to understand to really get into this text. When Adam is in the garden, he is perfect. He has not sinned. His will is free and unmarred by sin. And God puts Adam, as it were, in a probationary state. He gives him a covenant of works. He says, Adam, look, if you do this, you will live. But if you don't do it, you will die. And sin will come into the world. And what's the one thing Adam can't do? He can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's got the whole garden. God says, go, be fruitful, multiply, name the animals, have dominion, take care of the earth, be an eco-butler, use the resources I've given you, make iPhones come forth, but we don't get addicted to them. Do all the good things, eat all the good food, but do not sin. Just don't eat the tree, because what the tree represents is, I am the Lord. I am the, the God of the universe who gets to say what is good and what is evil. I am the ultimate standard, the moral compass, and I know what is good for your flourishing. But Adam breaks that covenant of works. And now all the sons and daughters of Adam are born under the yoke of that broken covenant. So it's not just that we sin and are selfish because we do things we shouldn't do. You know that's not true. It's because of our nature. Just try to be perfect for one day. I mean, some of you are pretty good people. Could you just be perfect for one day? And I don't mean kind of perfect. I mean Sermon on the Mount perfect, where all of your thoughts are perfect, where it's not just I don't commit adultery, but I don't even think a lustful thought. It's not just, uh, you know, I don't, I don't hurt anybody. It's I don't even have a bad thought about my neighbor. You have to lock yourself into a box with more white noise and sleeping pills than anyone could imagine, and you'd still screw up. On a good day, I make it till about, well, if the kids are in school, I make it till about 8 in the morning. If they're not, I get to sleep in a little bit, maybe 8.30. But I mean, just try to live perfectly one day and you will see that the problem is not that you do, on occasion, certain kinds of sins. That you're sort of just a, basically a good person. You're basically just good, but you've got a couple little flaws. You screw up from time to time. No, you will see that the problem of being under the broken covenant of works being in Adam, in our flesh, is that our nature loves the self more than it loves God. That's what's most deeply in us. I want to be my own God. I can be my own Savior. And as John said in the confession, we're, we're so bad at doing this that the second we get it right, God is gracious, we, we so quickly revert back to works and law again. Well, Prayed the prayer, believed in Jesus, got saved. Now try harder. There is no good news or gospel in that at all. 
So Paul wants us to remember that this covenant of works is operative in us and through us unless a Savior comes, not only to keep the covenant, but to provide a better one, which is why the promise given to Adam and Eve right after their sin is the beginning of this covenant of grace. How does God respond? Will you hear this? If you wonder if God loves you, if you wonder if God cares about you, if you wonder if God has a plan for your life and even your suffering, your ups and your downs, just hear this. Right after they screw up, God comes and says, I will do it because only I can. And he gives them a promise. Eve, someday in the future, when the time is right, a son will be born to you. And this son will crush the head of the serpent forever. And the grace of God and the kingdom of God will be yours forever and on display and irrevocable. I will do it. This is the promise that I am making to you. You've broken the covenant, transgressed the law, but I will find a way to give you my grace. And don't we know this is true? Because all the great saints of the Old Testament, as great as they were, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, as great as they were, none could say, I am the Christ. None could say, I've arrived, I'm here. In fact, up until the point when Jesus came, Satan had never lost. Until the point when Jesus came, Satan had never lost a single time. Oh, I mean, some of the little battles were, were lost, I'm sure, but he'd never lost the war. There had never been a perfect human being, a Messiah, an anointed one, who kept the law, who resisted the devil, who, do not, who did not sin, who could therefore turn around and fulfill the covenant of works. That's exactly what Jesus did. And because Jesus did that, he could be offered up in his perfect life as a perfect sacrifice to die for our sins. So that in place of our sin, we might be given or imputed freely the very righteousness of Jesus the perfect man himself. So that's what Paul is doing. There's two threads. The thread of Adam leads to death. The thread of Christ leads to life. Now the gift is greater than the death that comes for us. And Paul makes two points building upon what I've said. First of all, that the problem is universal. None of us can escape it. The implications of Adam's sin are cosmic. He is the head now of a new humanity he is a type of the one to come. Typologically, Adam represents us all. We are fallen in Adam and as fallen continue to fall unless we are saved. And Adam and all of his children prove that they cannot save themselves. The old type is impotent. Our flesh does not have the power to save. So the problem is universal, but it's not general. Although the problem is universal, it's particular. It is our problem. You may be asking, well, why, why do we need to dive into all this stuff? Well, the reason you and I need to dive into it is because except for the help of Christ, we are in Adam. We are helpless and hopeless without a Savior. We cannot be powerful enough or good enough or smart enough or wealthy enough or have our life just so in control enough to procure the righteousness of God that our souls need to be with him for eternity. I read Psalm 15 this week, and it humbled me. All of this humbles me. Man, this is, this is Paul's way of saying, are you prideful? Do you have your chest puffed out? Are you doing great? Do you see someone else, and 
You know, you see someone who's maybe they're needy or they're broken or they're hurting and you say, oh, it's just judgment. If we're prideful, nothing brings us equalized and low before the humbling cross of Christ, like understanding what it means to be left to our own devices in Adam. Psalm 15 asks this question, who can dwell on the holy hill of God? I started reading the Psalms like, oh, it's a great Psalm. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, if you have an upright heart and you're holy and you're perfect and your lips don't lie and your tongue doesn't speak evil and your hands do righteousness and justice in the world. And I was undone. Those are things I want to do, but things I struggle so deeply to do, even in my own heart, even in my own home. I mean, even the little voices that I entertain in my own mind that are so often condemning. So sin isn't merely universal, it is. You know, evidence exhibit A, human history. Evidence exhibit B, today's newspaper. It's not merely a universal problem in time and space, but it's our problem. Here's the summary. You can't call Jesus your Lord and still run your own life. That's what it means to be in Adam. You can't call Jesus your Lord and still run your own life. But when we look at our lives honestly, that's exactly our problem. So that's the thread of the line of Adam. One trespass spreads to many. This trespass leads to us sinning as well. We deserve condemnation and judgment for our sin. And Adam leaves us alone because Adam, like us, He's not a savior who can save. And that is why the gift is greater where grace abounds. The gift is greater because the grace of God abounds to us in the second Adam, the God-man, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Like the sin of the first Adam, the grace of the second Adam is also universally available Except this time the gift is greater because rather than it being a result of our own sin, this is framed positively. No one has to work their way to God. I certainly don't need to work my way to being a sinner. I do it all the time. Instead, now the grace is free. The gift is for all of us by faith. So Paul presents Jesus as a new covenant head, a new father of a new humanity bringing forth a new kingdom. And he says the gift is greater because the grace of God abounds. Now, there's two ways that we see this. We see it in the life of Christ, and we see it in the ongoing power of Christ for us now. First of all, in the life of Christ. Okay, when Paul uses this word gift and grace interchangeably in the text, he does it eight times. He's really trying to get his point across to us. The thread of Adam leads to death. And the thread of Christ leads to your life through his life. It is finished for you. And he is good and faithful and is finishing it in you. And he will bring it to completion. Because a new kingdom has come. He is the head of a new humanity. So the word abound here is a beautiful word. It says that grace abounds, but a better translation would be super abounds. It's a word that Paul only uses twice. And in the canon of Greek literature that we have from this time and place, it's the only time this conjunction is used. Paul makes up a new word. Because God's grace is so good and abounding so readily for us in the life of Christ and in our lives, he makes up a new word. The grace is super 
abounding. Now we see this in the temptation of Jesus. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 4. I also hinted at this. But the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is a beautiful story about the second Adam. Did you know that? It's really about Jesus as the second Adam. Because Jesus is taken into the wilderness, which is a new desert, but also a new garden. He's also put before him a new tree, new opportunities to either believe God or believe man. Satan tempts him and even uses the word of God to mockingly tempt him. But what does Jesus do? He fends off the temptation of the devil and does not sin. He perfectly keeps the law and the contractual nature of the law for us. Jesus fulfills the covenant of works. This is the first time Satan had ever lost. And when Jesus came out of the wilderness, the people asked him, what happened up there? What just happened with you and Satan and temptation in the wilderness? He said, the kingdom of God has come. This is the beginning of the crushing of the head of the serpent, the fulfilling of that covenant of grace, which God alone can do through the second Adam. Jesus beat the enemy for the first time. And it is because of the perfect life of Christ. He not only lived without sin, but he kept the law that we have hope in the second Adam. Because he kept the law, he can be God's man. Because of his perfect life without sin, he can be a sacrifice without blemish. And because he did all these things and not only died and raised, we can be sons and daughters of this second Adam with great hope. This hope is in the life of Christ, but it also extends to our lives. Grace in the life of Jesus, but grace abounding in our life now. This is what's so beautiful about this doctrine of the two threads, Adam and Christ. Wherever the sin of Adam is encroaching in your life, wherever you are struggling, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I know it can only be by your grace. I read the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and I see time and time again, it's the faithfulness of God that saves, not my works. Even where that is the case, but sin encroaches, grace is on a mission to destroy it. And one day we will stand before the Lord and all things will be made new. Our life and need in the first Adam shows us that the law cannot save us. Our works cannot save us. But what Jesus shows us now isn't just that his work is finished, but his work for you is ongoing. As he provides for you by the Holy Spirit, God's grace to seek and destroy sin in your lives and mold you more and more little by little into a beautiful, glorious, holy child who can shine forth that light and love in this city. I think in some ways, uh, the author N.T. Wright sums it up well, and so I'm going to read this quote. So Paul is saying that neither our power, nor our works, nor even keeping the law can bring about the new humanity. The sons and daughters of Adam in Adam are helpless to bring the garden back. Perhaps the law can do it, thought the Israelites, but no, following the rules does not and cannot usher in the kingdom. We are in our hearts and actions rule-breaking people, even a whole nation of us. No, what the law does is it exposes our sin more. Nothing is left hidden. 
No motive of the heart or passing thought uncovered. Consider that Jesus said it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks and that sin comes. Even if we are capable of managing our sin in our exterior appearance, God knows better. The law, therefore, is like a projector and sin is like a small color slide. Remember those where you put the small slide in the projector? You guys remember? The law puts our sin in a projector and enlarges the sin. But the problem with the law is although it can expose us for who we truly are, it can never save us from it. Thus, it is only, and this is the key point, it is only the giver of the law who is at the same time the keeper of the law who can under usher in a kingdom that can save. God's grace never means that he waves away the requirements for obedience or somehow minimizes his holiness, just the opposite. Jesus must be perfect in his life to procure our perfection in his sacrificial death. And Jesus must be perfect in continuing to give us life so that we might know and be assured that we will rise as perfected sons and daughters. No, Paul says, the gift is greater than the trespass. Now, the story of the child and the police officer doesn't just end with being whisked away in the patrol car. Officer Jerry Nix did something for this baby that Jesus does for us. He seized the rights and authority of his office and chose to lovingly and savingly represent this child. He couldn't wait for the EMT. He couldn't stay to continue administering CPR. Instead, he grabbed the child. He told the ladies what he was going to do. He put the child in the patrol car on his own lap and held it tight as he sped off at 80 miles an hour, sirens going full blast, breaking every law of the land. He rushed to find help and flew to the nearby emergency room where the staff was already outside waiting as the situation had been called in. And the doctor said, only because he acted in this way and this quickly were they able to save the life of this little boy. Now, look, I'm a dad, okay? I'm a dad. And so I, could, I might be watching a commercial for M&Ms and it could cause me to tear up nowadays. Okay? Like, I'm pretty, I'm like a chump. I just, I get teary-eyed over all kinds of stuff. But this week when I was watching this video, I mean, it was like Streams. And maybe it's because I was a little extra emo, you know, alone in my study on a Wednesday morning. But I don't think so. I think it's because as I studied the line of Adam and the line of Jesus, and as I studied what Jesus has done to get us to God the Father, this is a picture of the one who represents you if you are in Christ. You are the lifeless little baby boy. You cannot save yourself. You are limp. You are on your last breath. And it takes one with both authority and representation to grab you and hold you tight and use all of their power to get you to the only thing that can save. This is a story of exactly what God has done for us in the finished work of his son, the grace of our savior, Jesus the Christ. And that, my friends, is why the gift is so much greater. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you 
for this great and tightly packed and meaty book of Romans. Thank you for this text that shows us the great and glorious implication that is ours, that we can cling to for assurance on our hardest days, that although we are born in the line of Adam by grace alone, and the perfect life of Jesus, and the perfect death of Jesus, and the resurrection of King Jesus, and Jesus who is seated now at the Father praying and interceding for us, we can have life. We can have a new Father, and a new humanity, and a new kingdom. We can cling to the gift that is greater. God, thank you that it is because of this saving work that your kindness leads us to repent to make us holy, to send us out now into Santa Fe. Yes, we still struggle, but to send us full of love and grace so that we can be those who honor you and love you by obeying your commandments. Not because we have to, because this grace that saves is so wonderful, we want to. Pray you would do that in us. In Christ's name, amen.